From the 26th of February to the 2nd of March 2013, the London School of Economics will hold its fifth annual Space for Thought Literary Festival. The LSE Review of Books team has been out on the road to meet some of this year's literary festival speakers, and in this special edition podcast, you'll hear a taster of some of the events to come. Anne Applebaum, Pulitzer Prize winner and LSE's current Philippe Roman Chair in History and International Affairs, talks to us about her literary festival event, Narrative Memory and the Mind, taking place on Wednesday the 27th of February, and talks to us about how personal histories have played a role in her books on the Soviet Union. Nigel Warburton, Senior Philosophy Lecturer at the Open University and host of the extremely popular Philosophy Bites podcast, talks to us about his event on Tuesday the 26th of February, Philosophy by Podcast. Nigel speaks about philosophy in the 21st century and how the podcast may rejuvenate the Socratic method. But first we hear from Literary Festival organiser Louise Gaskell about the host of events available to attend. My name is Louise Gaskell, organiser of the LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival. We're delighted to be marking the festival's fifth anniversary this year. The festival began as a way of celebrating the opening of LSE's new academic building in 2009, a new space for thought, and it has since gone from strength to strength. The festival events still take place in the new academic building's lecture theatres and open spaces. The festival's aim is to explore the rich interaction between the arts and social sciences through a series of events that are free to attend and open to all. From its foundation, LSE has aimed to be a laboratory of the social sciences, a place where ideas are developed, analysed and disseminated around the globe. Literature is a powerful tool for such exploration and dissemination, and we believe that the festival is a unique event where great literary and academic minds are brought together to discuss a wide range of topics. For our fifth festival in 2013, we are exploring the theme Branching Out, Partly in celebration of the festival's anniversary, which would traditionally be marked by wood, but also in homage to the 300th anniversary of the birth of Denis Diderot, author of the Encyclopédie, who developed the figurative systems of the branches of human knowledge. Our series of events features a stellar lineup of speakers, including Lisa Opinionese, award-winning author and cultural commentator, Booker Prize winner and LSE alumna Pat Barker, former Mayor of London Ken Livingstone, and preeminent historian and filmmaker Michael Wood. Other highlights of the festival include a recording of BBC World Service's The Forum discussing the challenge of ageing in our society, hosted by lawyer Helena Kennedy, with director of the Oxford Institute of Population Ageing, Professor Sarah Harper, award-winning author P.D. James, and global health expert Hans Rosling, and an innovative legal proceedings putting austerity on trial. The charges will be brought and defended by a team of lawyers with expert witnesses including Tim Frost, Magdalena Sepulveda and Polly Toynbee. The festival also includes creative writing workshops, events for children and live storytelling. Really something for everyone. My name is Anne Applebaum, and the title of the session I'll be participating in is Narrative Memory and the Mind. I've used quite a lot of oral history in my writing, uh, which means that I've done many interviews of people who lived through the events that I've described in my books. When I wrote my book about the Gulag, I interviewed many people who'd been inside the Gulag and some whose parents had been inside. And my more recent book, 
I interviewed people who remembered the events of the late 1940s and early 1950s in Eastern Europe. It was a book about the imposition of totalitarianism in Eastern Europe. What I find is that although oral history can't give you names and dates and exact pictures of events, you can't rely on people's memories for you know, reliable accounts of what exactly happened when, what people can give you is the mood of a situation or the attitudes that people had. And in a way, even how it played later on in their memories. We remember things that are important to us. And very often, people did remember political events that were important to them or had affected them particularly. And even just knowing what those are, for example, in, in the late 1940s, helped me understand a lot how people perceive what was happening to them. I have found oral history to be incredibly useful, although, as I say, I, I realize that the people... Um, I'm working with don't remember everything exactly. They remember things through a filter. Nevertheless, it's a very useful piece of, of the work. Otherwise, I would be relying only on memoirs, which are carefully composed and less spontaneous, as well as archives, which inevitably also are biased. They also give only one version of a, of a particular historical event. I try to use cross-section of sources. I use both archives and I use sources written at the time, so newspapers and other kinds of writings from the period, uh, and I use memoirs and I use uh, interviews. I try to have them balance one another out. I found this worked particularly well in the case of the Gulag book, where I did often find archival descriptions of certain kinds of situations. You know, for example, when fights between prisoners, that are just, there are some of them that are described in archives in 1940s, and then I had memoir and I had interview descriptions of them from the points of view of people who remembered them. And so that gave me some insight into what was the camp officials' view of what had happened. There was a famous series of fights between criminal and political prisoners, and it also gave me some insights into how the prisoners had perceived those same events. And it's not really a case of the truth lying somewhere in between, because the view from those two different sides is, of course, very different. But it, it allowed me to describe the attitude of both groups. Just as reading archives gives you an insight into what those who were created the system thought they were doing, how they justified it to themselves, how they described what was happening, memoirs and particularly oral history give you an insight into how, how people interpreted that at the time, how they interpreted it for themselves. I'm Nigel Warburton, and I'll be speaking at the Literary Festival on the 26th of February on the topic of philosophy by podcast, and I'll be joined by my co-podcaster, David Edmonds. As far as I'm concerned, philosophy began with Socrates. I know there are pre-Socratic philosophers like Heraclitus and so on, but it really got going with this rather strange, shambolic figure who used to accost people in the marketplace and question them about the things they thought they knew best. He would ask a soldier about what bravery meant and by that process of questioning reveal just how little and how inadequate the, the definition that the soldier gave of bravery was. What's interesting for me is that this is all a matter of conversation dialectic, the Socratic method of revealing ignorance through questioning, which is exactly what we're trying to do with podcasting, not revealing the, the ignorance, but teasing out ideas, trying to understand what somebody thinks through a process of question and answer. So with Philosophy Bites, we've got this series of over 200 podcasts where we've interviewed some of the most eminent philosophers on the planet, each one for about 15 minutes. And the idea is we, we interview them on a specific topic 
And through that conversation, all kinds of things come out that wouldn't come out in the written word. First of all, it's much easier to understand what they're saying when they're in conversation. But secondly, you get a sense of the person. And some of them are quite contagious in their enthusiasm for ideas. So there's the feeling of the philosophy as well as the content. Socrates felt that the spoken word was far superior to the written word because the written word could only ever say the same thing back to you, whoever you were. Um, It wasn't tailored to the, the individual reader it didn't communicate irony very well didn't communicate all kinds of subtleties and ambiguities were brought into the communication through writing so he felt the moment in of dialogue was the thing the living interaction well obviously we're not doing that there is the living interaction that is the the interview but that then is edited to a certain extent discreetly and the listeners are eavesdropping on a quasi live conversation but there is this sense that Philosophy is the kind of subject which thrives on debate and, and putting opposite views or teasing out views or clarifications. So there is a great value, in my opinion, of dialogue above monologue in philosophy. And that's something that has existed in written form from time to time in philosophy. So Plato's dialogues, Hume wrote dialogues. But it's fallen by the wayside as a form. But now I think it's being renewed through digital technology through the possibility of ordinary people like me getting access to the means to create audio programs. To find out more about the LSE Literary Festival and to book free tickets, go to lse.ac.uk forward slash space for thought. And to read the latest book reviews from a wide range of social science titles and hear our LSE Review of Books podcasts, visit lsereviewofbooks.com. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, And the song used throughout is Radical Leap by Dumbo Gets Mad. I'm Amy Mollett. Thanks for listening.